It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. After the podcast, check out our other episodes, all our Bible study resources, videos, download the CQ app, and more at ChristianQuestions.com. Today's topic is, Does God Ever Tempt Us? Coming up in this episode... God wants all true Christians to be faithful, but to what lengths would he go to accomplish this? Does God ever tempt us on purpose with things we are especially vulnerable to? When the Lord's Prayer says, lead us not into temptation, does that mean God could lead us there? Now, here's Rick and Jonathan. Welcome everyone, I'm Rick. I'm joined by Jonathan, my co-host for over 20 years. Jonathan, what is our theme scripture for today's episode? James 1, 12. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. God is all-powerful and all-knowing. The problem is we often don't think about what that really means. Not only has knowledge of God diminished in our day, respect and reverence for him are now a scarce commodity. Humanity in this technology-driven age is prone to judgment without understanding, and our benevolent creator is an easy target for this. We have discussed many supposed contradictions about God in our Bible Contradiction series, and we're going to bring up a few more today. Primarily, we want to look at the relationship between God, us, and our hard experiences in life. Does God purposefully place temptations in front of us as a way to teach or punish. Some say the Bible says yes, and others say the Bible absolutely says no. So, who's right? Well, here's an idea. Let's actually look at the Bible and find out. Problem. Does God ever tempt us for any reason? Well, some Old Testament scriptures seem to say yes. Genesis 22.1 And it came to pass after these things, that God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here I am. And in Judges 2.22, that through them I may prove Israel, whether they will keep the way of the Lord to walk therein, as their fathers did keep it, or not. All right, so we've got two scriptures that give us this sense of God tempting. So let's look at this. Let's begin with the Old Testament, just the Old Testament first. And our first, we're going to take a look at an example of Israel. Now, we're going to turn the tables. Israel pushing or Israel tempting God. Let's look at Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 and 2. And all the congregation of the children of Israel journeyed from the wilderness of sin after their journeys according to the commandment of the Lord and pitched in Rephidim, and there was no water for for the people to drink. Wherefore the people did chide with Moses, and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said unto them, Why chide ye with me? Wherefore do ye tempt the Lord? Well, Rick, think about it. They were worried. There was no water in sight. They were thirsty and desperate. But didn't God miraculously bring them out of Egypt miracle after miracle? Shouldn't they have just chilled? Yes, yes, they should have. But it's hard when you're thirsty. It really is. So, and, and here, here what we're seeing is the people pushed and pressed and demanded of the Lord. And here's the thing. Jonathan, you read a scripture in Genesis, one in Judges, and now one in Exodus. The word for tempt in all of these verses actually has a very broad base of meaning. So let's start there. What does that word actually mean? Well, according to the Hebrew-English lexicon, the word tempt means to test, try, prove, tempt, assay, put to the proof. Now, I looked up the word assay, and it means determine the quality of metal. So, in other words, what are you really made of? So, the really the deep thought behind this word for tempt is testing. And, and I like that. What are you really made of? So, let's look at a few other examples of, quote, tempting or testing in the Old Testament. Further examples of humanity pushing, proving, or testing. What? Testing God, things, or another person. Three different examples. First is Gideon proving God. Judges chapter 6, verse 39. And Gideon said unto God, Let not thine anger be hot against me, and I will speak but this once. Let me prove, I pray thee, 
but this once with the fleece, let it now be dry only upon the fleece, and upon all the ground let there be dew. Gideon was afraid, and he wanted God to show him again, and he asked with humility. Yeah, he did, and it's such a great example, because God had already showed him once, and he's like, I've never done this before, just just give me a break, just show me one more time, I'm just scared. So you do have this, this putting to the test, but it's done with great personal humility. Let's look at another example. David, when he's just a shepherd, and the untested armor that he's given by King Saul in 1 Samuel 17, verse 39. And David girded his sword upon his armor, and he essayed to go, for he had not proved it. And David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not proved them. And David put them off him. Well, Saul gave David his armor, but Saul was a big man, and David was small. How could that work? And, and you know, the whole point was he had never worn this armor. He's going to go into battle with Goliath. He's like, I can't go, go fight with something I'm, I'm not used to. So he hadn't proved, hadn't tested the armor. So you can see that word really doesn't only mean tempt. You've really got this test sense upon it. Now let's look at a third example. This is the Queen of Sheba testing King Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 1. And when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to prove him with hard questions. So she came to test his so-called wisdom, but she had to see it for herself. Yeah, so you can see there's a different sense of the proving here than Gideon proving God. There's a very different sense. So what, what do we see here? The Old Testament word that, that shows up in all of these verses that we've talked about so far. Uh, it shows us that its meaning of tests can be used both in negative and positive ways. Negatively, it pushes someone or something out of strong emotion or motivation to expose a flaw or a fault. Positively, it is to test someone or something for the sake of proving value or strength. And Rick, with our examples, we saw the humility of Gideon. We saw the practicality of David. And we saw the cockiness of the Queen of Sheba, and they all showed us this word has a broad-based meaning. The context, your favorite word, Rick, tells us what the word means. And that's a, a really important aspect of looking at the question, does God ever tempt us for any reason? Because the word has different shades of meaning. Now, based on what you just said, looking at these three examples, Satan, on the other hand, tests as well. But see, he has a whole different purpose in mind. His testing is to find and to exploit weakness. Now, in the next scripture we're going to read, the word does not appear, but we certainly get the sense of testing and tempting. First Chronicles chapter 21, verse 1. Then Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. And, of course, David's a king. Uh, he's very popular, they win a lot, uh, and you have that personal pride welling up in him, and Satan pushed him into pride. God had told him, don't number the people, because I want you to rely on me. But no, it says that Satan stood up against Israel and moved David. He tempted him, he tested him, and David failed that particular test. So we can see Satan is out to destroy with his testing. Let's look at God. God does test, but he does not tempt. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. And this is from the New Living Translation. Sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. Abraham, God called? Yes, he replied, here I am. Well, the King James Version translated this word as tempt, which makes God sound evil. It doesn't even make sense. Testing Abraham's faith does make sense. And it's important to understand, like you said earlier, the context defines the meaning with a word like this. And you can see that God's intention all the way through, as a matter of fact, in our last podcast talking about contradictions and human sacrifice, we went into this particular account in great, great detail. God did not intend for him to kill his son, but it was a test of his faith for the purpose of great blessing. God's motivation was to positively prove Abraham's life as a faith, I'm sorry, Abraham's faith as a solid foundation upon which to build a nation that would bless 
all the families of the earth through the deliverer of all humanity. That's what that test was there for. Now, that nation of Israel, well, God often put this nation into periods of testing, the whole nation. Why? To show them the standard they needed to strive for and to correct them when they fell short. And that's what a good parent does, Rick. Let's read Judges 2, 20 through 23. So the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he said, Because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and has not listened to my voice, I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died, in order to test Israel by them, whether they will keep the way of the Lord to walk in it as their fathers did or not. So the Lord allowed these nations to remain, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. So God left some enemy nations around them as a testing ground. And the point was, there's a variance in their faithfulness. I'm going to see if they adhere to my standards or not. And look, God has a right to do that. If he's going to bless you, if he's going to deliver you, if he's going to take you out of Egypt with the plagues and bring you across the Red Sea and do all of those things, he has a right to say, you need to stand up higher. You need to stand up higher. You need to stand up higher. So we're looking at this, Jonathan, we can see, we see God does test absolutely in the Old Testament, but there is no tempting, there's no evil sense to that. So let's put this all together. Well, the Old Testament paints a clear picture of the pitfalls and value of testing. When anyone tests or proves someone or something out of their own egotistical perspective, it can easily result in a temptation or trap. When God tests, it's always for the sake of revealing sin or pointing to righteousness. He never tests to trap, tempt, or embarrass. So you look at this, and one of the big questions is, what do I do when I may be putting somebody or something to the test? What's my motivation? Because we see God's motivation is clearly above, and we can see some of the human motivations we looked at were like, yeah, not so good. And, and we see Satan's motivation as pure evil. So we have to understand that the same testing can come in all kinds of different packages, and we need to be clear on what comes from God, what comes from others, and what does it look like when it comes from us. So it's comforting to see the Old Testament standard that God has set for the proving of his people and their faithfulness. So what about the New Testament? Doesn't God put temptation before us as a learning tool? Good question. As we now look into the teachings of the gospel and the development of true Christian disciples, we're going to see a powerful consistency between the Old and New Testaments. Once again, we want to be clear on exactly what God does and doesn't do. We're going to find that the words used combined with The context they are used in will tell the whole story. So it's the words used and the context that they're used in. Okay, Rick, does God ever tempt us for any reason? Some New Testament scriptures seem to say he had a direct hand in our being tempted. Matthew 6, 13. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. So, is this saying God is tempting us and giving us a way to escape? Is he tempting us and telling us how to get out of it? So, in other words, is he... (laughs) making it really hard and saying, okay, here's a way out. It's like, and you look at that, and that doesn't even feel right to to start with. So we need to examine that. So here's the thing. When When you read the Lord's Prayer, do not lead us into temptation. And in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation is overtaking to you, overtaking you. And then it says, God will not allow you to be tempted. We've got two specific Greek words here. So let's define the words and their uses. 
The two words we're going to define are both the noun form and the verb form of the same word. Let's start with a noun. A noun is a person, place, or thing. The word translated temptation means a putting to proof by experiment of good, experience of evil, solicitation, discipline, or provocation by implication, adversity. Now for the verb, which is an action form of the word that is translated tempted. It means to test objectively, that is endeavor, scrutinize, entice, discipline. Well, Rick, there's a lot to this word, but it really seems similar to the Old Testament word we talked about. It does. And, you know, sometimes you get it where you get an Old Testament word and the New Testament is like, yeah, different language, but pretty much exactly the same thing. And that's, that's what we're dealing with here, but we're getting specific now with the noun form of the word and the verb form of the word. And this is an important word because it's used in a variety of ways. And our big question is, does God ever tempt us? So Jonathan, you put Matthew 6.13 on the table and 1 Corinthians 10.13. So let's start with Matthew 6.13. This is part of the Lord's Prayer. But let's add verse 12 to it. So Matthew 6.12 and 13. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Well, Rick, this verse is not talking about physical debts like those who owe money, is it? No, no. Forgive us those things that we have done amiss, as we forgive those who have done something amiss to us. There is this equity that is being spoken of here. And then it says, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And now let's focus on the word temptation. Uh, the biblical commentary by Albert Barnes talks about verse 13, and lead us not into temptation. A petition similar to this is offered by David in Psalm 141, verse 4. Incline not my heart to any evil thing, to practice wicked works with men that work iniquity. God tempts no man, see James 1, 13. This phrase then must be used in the sense of permitting, do not suffer us or permit us to be tempted to sin. In this, it is implied that God has such control over us and the tempter as to save us from it if we call upon him. So the, 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 the sense of the word is, is aptly explained by, by Albert Barnes' commentary, the sense of permitting, not, not saying, here, I'm going to drag you into this bare, terrible thing but um, permitting something to happen. So we want to put this, put this together. Jesus is teaching us in the Lord's Prayer, lead us not in temptation, into temptation, but deliver us from evil. He's teaching us to be ever looking to our Father to guide us as we navigate through the hard testing experiences of our life. He's basically saying, always look up, always look up. Essentially, Jesus is teaching us to be led through these testing experiences by being delivered from evil. And it's interesting in this verse, Jonathan, where it says, deliver us from evil. The word m more aptly is, is, is translated the evil. And who do you think of when you think of the evil? Satan, of course. So you've got the being delivered from temptation by being delivered from Satan. So you've got this, this strength of God's capacity and ability to deliver. It's not that we're not going to have hard experiences. As a matter of fact, there is a very similar sentiment in the 23rd Psalm, as we rely on Jesus as our shepherd. Psalm 23, verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Well, Jesus is bringing us through the valley, not to the valley. In episode 1242, Is the Lord Really My Shepherd? We learn that when the sun is up and everything is light, the shepherd leads his sheep from out in front. But as the sun goes down and things get dark, the shepherd drops back to be amongst his sheep. It is in the same with the Lord. He leads us, but when we go through a dark valley, that's when the Lord comes beside us and comforts us. And I, I love the way you started out that comment saying it's not that the Lord that, that Jesus leads us to the valley, but he leads us through the valley. And that's the exact sense, I think, of Matthew 6, 13. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Okay, you're going to have a hard experience, but the deliverance is what comes. And that's what the 23rd Psalm was all about, putting it all in order.
So I think this is, we're, we're getting a, a clear sense that this is not, I'm going to make you uh, fall down in your worst, worst experiences. That's not at all what God is doing. He's leading us through those by delivering us from the evil one. Let's talk about Jesus, though, for a few minutes here, because Jesus was tested or tempted, and I'll submit you can use either word here, in a very serious way by Satan. The objective of Satan was to make Jesus fall. Let's look at Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So, Jonathan, you read that verse, and it says, uh, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted, to be tempted, the verb form of that word, by the devil. And the first temptation is, to make stones into bread. Why? He's really hungry. And that would have been something that his body would have been screaming for, food. But Jesus' answer was secure. But here's the key to this. It says that he's there to be tempted by the devil, and he became hungry, and says, and the tempter, same word, now it's the noun, and it's used to describe Satan. He's now given the name, the tempter, the tester. This isn't a good name to have, incidentally. <laughs> you don't want to be known as that guy because that guy has got it all about tripping people up. And that's what Satan tried to do. And of course, Jesus. Jesus handled it by quoting Scripture and staying 100% faithful to his Heavenly Father and doing just his will. So even though the tempter tried, Jesus proved faithful, faithful not only then, but throughout his entire life. And we have that in Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Well, Rick, let's get practical. How can Satan tempt us today? How about through social media and television? where the moral standard is being destroyed and makes immorality seem acceptable. Satan also distracts our Christian walk by tempting our use of time, such as politics, sports, hobbies, which are not necessarily wrong, but they take our focus off the most important thing, which is developing Christ-likeness. And so we can find grace to help in time of need because we know Jesus overcame whatever testing came his way, and we want to be in that same boat. We pray because we know Jesus is with us. He knows our experiences. So, as in the Old Testament, the understanding of whether one is being tested or tempted comes through uh, in the context of the experience. To test can be easily taken in several different ways. And Jonathan, let, let, let's just give uh, four different examples of the way the word test can be used. Well, in a positive sense, I have studied hard and I'm ready for the test. So you're ready for the test? Yes. So, oh, wow. Okay. He's enthusiastic about being ready for the test. He studied. He's ready for the test. All right. Let's take a look at a more negative perspective. They think they know so much, they won't get by my test. Uh-uh. Oh, Rick, sounds like the other guy's perspective. Oh, Satan. Yeah, we don't want to go there. Okay. All right. <laughs> no, all right. No. Move, move on to another one. <laughs> all right. How about this? Another positive. I think this contraption is going to work. Let's test it. So again, there's something where the, the testing is a very positive experience. Or how about a negative one? You think you're tougher than me? Don't test me. And Jonathan, to me, what this is, this is a testosterone-filled challenge. Too, too much <laughs> <For> testing, <sure. laughs> too much face-to-face, <laughs> too, -to -face, too much I'm tougher than you. We got to watch out for those kinds of things. Let's look at one last example, and this is a scriptural example. The newly converted Apostle Paul. Now remember his background. He was a Christian killer, and now he is a newly converted Christian. Acts 9, 26. When he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. 
Well, the Apostle Paul was seeking fellowship in a positive, humble way. He was trying, but he didn't get anywhere. He was trying, because the problem was, Jonathan, that he was too trying before he was trying, if you know what I mean. Again, <laughs> I using, do know what you mean. <laughs> using the same word. Folks, the point is, the word has a variety of meanings, and the context speaks volumes as to what it actually means. And so our big question, you know, does God tempt us? So all of this is to lay the groundwork. Let's look at our Christian testing and temptations now. And what we're going to find is a very plain, straightforward answer in James chapter 1. Let's start with James 1, verses 2 to 4. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing, and that word means trustworthiness, of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I love the knowing that the testing, the trustworthiness of your faith produces endurance. So in this scripture, it talks of uses that word, that same word for, for, for test or tempt, it, it, about encountering various trials, various testings, various difficulties. And this is something that is important for us. So we got to ask ourselves, okay, so what is the source of these trials and testing experiences? Where do they come from? James, a little further down, starting with verse 12, going from 12 to 15, very clearly answers this. James 1, 12 through 15. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those whom love him. Let no one say, when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted. Let's pause a second. This is a different word, meaning God is not temptable by evil. Continuing, and he himself does not tempt, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Okay, so we've got verses uh, 12 and 13, and it says that don't say when you're tempted, when you're going through trial, that, that this is from God, because it, 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 the scripture says he is not temptable by evil. And Jonathan, that is one of the greatest subtle promises in scripture, I think. Oh, it is. You, you think about the idea that God is not temptable by evil. You can try whatever you want. It will not work. He does not tempt anyone. That's not the way God operates. Here's where our temptation comes from. Verses 14 and 15 of James chapter 1. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust or desires. And when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Well, Rick, Satan knows our weaknesses, and we need to protect ourselves from his assaults. We need to put up barriers to prevent us from the traps of our weaknesses. It's a battle to overcome the lust of the eye and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. It helps to find a support team to be accountable to, such as your spouse or a brother or sister in Christ. We're not in this alone. Romans 12, 21 says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And Proverbs 24, 16 says, a righteous man falls seven times and rises up again. And such a, such a, such a great wrap-up for that scripture. We are tempted when we're carried away by our own desires. We have to realize that, understand it, and like you said, arm ourselves. The reason for our testing and temptation is our own imperfect selves. Why? so we can learn how to truly be overcoming disciples of Jesus. So, let's go further. God works with and through our imperfect and temptation-prone selves and does provide the deliverance that Jesus taught us to pray for in the Lord's Prayer. So let's go back. You started with 1 Corinthians 10, 13 at the beginning of these questions for the New Testament. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 10, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Let me pause here. In other words, don't be self-assured. Be assured in God through Christ. Amen. Continuing with verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. So God provides us the way to handle those things. And the, the, so instead of God tempting us, what it's saying is God is protecting us when we fall into our own temptations. 
That is a beautiful way to look at this and understand the power of God and how much he cares for us. So Jonathan, clarifying contradictions, focusing on God, tempting or not tempting us. Both the Old and New Testaments verify that God does not tempt anyone. He does, however, test us for the sake of our growth in Christ. In the Bible, tempting and testing are determined by the motivation behind them. Satan tempts. What is Satan known as? The deceiver, the tempter, the father of lies. God tests. What is God known as? The Almighty, the self-existing one, our Heavenly Father. Who tempts and who tests? Big difference. Big difference. Big difference between the two. And we want to hold on to that difference and be sure to honor God in understanding what he does and why he does it for us. So defining tempting and testing according to scripture really sheds light on what to be wary of and what to be thankful for. We know that God doesn't ever tempt us. Next question, does God ever give us permission to steal? Okay, well, the simple answer to this would be, of course not. However, we need to be aware that there are maybe a few scriptures that people read and interpret as God giving permission for such behavior. As usual, we need to critically look at these verses, understand their immediate context, as well as the larger context of the Bible itself. So again, it's all going to come down to understanding the bigger picture. Does God ever, under any circumstance, give us permission to take that which is not ours? How about Exodus 20, verses 15 and 17? You shall not steal. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Well, simple enough. And yet we have these. Exodus 3, 22. But every woman shall ask of her neighbor and of the woman who lives in her house articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing, and you will put them on your sons and daughters. Thus you will plunder the Egyptians. Next, Deuteronomy 20:14. But you may keep for yourselves all the women, children, livestock, and other plunder. You may enjoy the plunder from your enemies that the Lord your God has given you. So, Rick, the commandments say, do not steal, do not covet, and yet God is instructing them to take valuables from the Egyptians and the Israelite enemies. So is God saying we can steal? All right, a legitimate question. So let's put it in perspective. And this all has to do, we're really gonna focus on the idea of plundering and acts of war and things of that, because that's the context in which we're gonna operate here. So let's start with that first example, Exodus chapter three. We're gonna start with Exodus chapter three and establish the broader context of what God was saying. Now remember, these words in Exodus chapter three were spoken before, they were spoken before any of the plagues on Egypt occurred. So Jonathan, you read Exodus 3.22 before, let's expand it a little bit and read Exodus 3.20 through 22. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles, which I shall do in the midst of it. And after that, he will let you go. I will grant this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And it shall be then when you go and you will not go empty handed. But every woman shall ask of her neighbor and of the woman who lives in her house, articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing. And you will put them on your sons and daughters. Thus, you will plunder the Egyptians. Okay, so you've got this sense of thus you will take their stuff. And when people look at that, that's the piece that they lock onto. Well, let's put this in in the broader context of what happened. This was spoken essentially prophetically before any of this happened. Let's fast forward to the brief time between the first nine plagues and the last plague, the tenth plague. So we're going to pause into that interlude between the ninth and tenth plague And we're going to notice the details that Moses' words reveal as he is again repeating this to Israel. But listen to the details. Exodus 11, verses 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Moses, One more plague I will bring on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out from here completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that each man asks for his neighbor and each woman for her neighbor for articles of silver and articles of gold. The Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. 
Furthermore, the man Moses himself was greatly esteemed in the land of Egypt, both in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. Well, to help explain this, we have a biblical commentary by Albert Barnes on the statement, shall ask. The Egyptians had made the people serve with rigor, and the Israelites, when about to leave the country forever, were to ask or claim the jewels as a just, though very inadequate, payment for their services rendered. Okay, so there they were, and they were to ask. And it's interesting that it says in these verses in Exodus 11, especially verse 3, Furthermore, Moses was greatly esteemed in the land of Egypt, both in the sight of Pharaoh and the servant and the sight of his people. Previously, it said that the people were favored in the sight of the Egyptians. Why? Because God was on their side. They saw it, and there was a reverential fear essentially going on here. But they saw Moses as incredibly powerful. Therefore, those who followed him were treated with respect. Let's keep that in mind. Let's move on to the actual event now. The actual event is in Exodus chapter 12, verses 35 and 36. Now the sons of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, for they had requested from the Egyptians articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have their request. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And Rick, we have uh, an comment from the Encyclopedia of Bible Difficulties by Gleason Archer, and this is on plundering. It is not the usual term of plundering the enemy. This word means deliver someone from danger. The narrative plainly states that the Israelites simply made an oral request for a parting gift, and they received what they asked for. To be sure, there was a compelling factor of fear that moved the Egyptians to be so generous in parting with their treasures. And Rick, we know that's fear factor was the death of the firstborn. And so it's interesting that it's not the usual word for plunder as you would in an act of war. It's a very different thing, delivering someone from danger. So essentially, the Egyptians were delivered from the danger of not obeying the God of Israel. That's really what it came down to. There was this deliverance, and they complied. Get out of here. We don't want you here anymore. Go away. There was no stealing here. Instead, there was a realization and a recognition by all, of the might, uh, by all of the mighty power of God and the utter folly of Pharaoh. You see, the people compared the two and said, you know what? God is more powerful. We got to get these people out of here. We're all going to die. Let's just get them out of here. Because Pharaoh was so obstinate, so stubborn. He stood in the way. He stood in the way. And they're saying, look, go, just go. So you don't have that sense of taking without, uh, with, without permission. There was not only permission, there was, yes, take it and please leave and I don't want to ever see you again. <laughs> so that's what we've got there. However, let's talk about plundering in the normal sense. Let's go to the actual taking of spoils by Israel. And you mentioned the scripture before. We're just going to broaden the context. Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 10 through 14. Let's do 10 and 11 first. And this is from the New Living Translation. As you approach a town to attack it, you must first offer its people's terms for peace. If they accept your terms and open the gates to you, then all the people inside will serve you in forced labor. Okay, so what it's saying is before you are taking, uh, getting into war, you offer peace. You offer a settlement. Now look, the, the, the nations around Israel knew that when God fought for them, there's, they had no chance. So the idea was, we don't, we don't have to wipe you all out, okay? We can, we can negotiate. And so you give this sense of before anybody gets hurt, let's see if we can do something different. And then there's the however. Let's continue. But if they refuse to make peace and prepare to fight, you must attack the town. When the Lord your God hands the town over to you, use your swords to kill every man in the town. But you may keep for yourselves all the women, children, livestock, and other plunder. You may enjoy the plunder from your enemies that the Lord your God has given you. We have a commentary. Bridgeway Bible commentary states, Israel was not to act with the brutality that characterized other nations. Though they were to destroy the people of Canaan and their cities, for this was God's judgment on the wicked Canaanites, Israel's soldiers were not to destroy non-Canaanite cities unless the people refused Israel's terms of peace. They were to attack only when all else failed. 
But even then, they were to attack only the soldiers, not the women or children. And it goes on and explains other details of things that they're supposed to just let it be. So, yes, you have plundering. You have uh, the, 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 the war uh, approach of old times, and, and unfortunately, some of this does carry over to our time. But this isn't stealing. It is abiding by rules of war and conquering in ancient times. And look, when you're in a world full of sin, that's what rules. And we've talked about this many, many, many times before. While still harsh beyond our present-day standards, it is to be emphasized that the nation of Israel had far more compassion in victory than its surrounding nations. And that's one of the takeaways here. This wasn't stealing. This was, you go to war, you win the war, you get the stuff. That's the way it worked. And look, today in our world, it works that way as well. So we can't look at that and say, well, no, God's making them steal. or Not at all. This is just the way the world works when sin rules the world. So we've got these, Jonathan, and no, God is not telling people to steal. There is one other example that frankly frustrates me, but we're going to go through it anyway. Jesus using the cult of a donkey to ride into Jerusalem is one example of a New Testament scripture that some construe as stealing. Really? (laughs) Yeah. You know what? All you have to do with this is read the account and it's going to straighten out the misconception. Jonathan, we don't need Bible commentaries. We don't need word definitions. Let's just read the account. So we're in Luke chapter 19, verses 29 to 34. He sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you. There, as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? They said, The Lord has need of it. Okay. It's a really simple story. The mere fact that the owners came out and said, Hey, why are you untying that colt? And they were given the answer that Jesus told them to give. The Lord has need of it. You see, you had a conversation with the owners of the animal. Now, did the owners of the animal say, don't you touch that colt? Not at all. Did they say, well, you know, we want to make sure that we're going to get that colt back in a timely fashion? Nope. And they didn't say, hey, that's going to cost you X amount of money. Right. (laughs) Why? Why wouldn't they say that? Folks, think about this. This is when Jesus is going to be riding into Jerusalem. There were all these people. Everybody knew who Jesus was. Everybody knew what he stood for. Everybody knew about the raising of Lazarus from the dead not too long before this. And if you, as an average person, had the followers of Jesus come to your house and want to take that animal because the Lord had need of it, you're going to say, you mean the cult that I own, Jesus needs? Whoa. I mean, it's not a problem. It's a privilege. Exactly, exactly, (laughs) exactly. So it was a privilege to supply this animal for service. And and the account doesn't give us any, any wrinkle that it could be anything but a privilege. So no, there's no stealing. No, 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 absolutely not. All right, Jonathan, clarifying contradictions, what do we have? The very idea... God giving permission to steal is completely out of harmony with his character and the scriptures. What we do see is how God works in a just way, when necessary, adds compassion where appropriate and is always true to principle. Rather than accuse him of immoral direction, we should follow his lead. Yeah, you know, it really does turn when you look at things in a scriptural, clear, sensible way and understand the context. So... In God's eyes, stealing is never appropriate. What a surprise. What an example of having integrity in each and every experience. So we should never steal ever. Next question. Does God really see everything everywhere in the world? We do have several scriptures that help us understand God as an all-seeing creator. As with the other contradictions we've covered, there are a few scriptures that seem to challenge this. These seeming contradictions can be 
clearly explained through simple, simple logic that is backed by, guess what, other scriptures. You know, Jonathan, we, we've talked about I don't know how many contradictions in this whole series, but when you look at all of these contradictions, the answers are always the same. Look at the context, look at the words, look at the larger context of the Bible, and things have a way of showing you very clear-cut answers. Rick, is God able to see and know all things about all events on earth? Well, here's the problem. God doesn't seem to know where Abel is, and Cain eventually leaves God's presence. Genesis 4, 9 through 10 and 16. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? He said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. God then talks to Cain about a sin, proclaims a sentence, and at the same time, protection for him. Verse 16, then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Okay, so your question, your problem was, God didn't seem to know where Abel was because he had to ask Cain, and then eventually Cain is able to leave God's presence. Like, okay, where did he go? So it sounds like God is just losing people. And, and stop, time out. Okay, let's, let's think about this very, very sensibly. First of all, the solution here is, 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 again, scripturally sound and clear. God obviously knew the whereabouts of Abel as he saw the tragedy of his murder. He said to Cain, the blood of your brother cries out to me from the ground. Of course he knew where Abel was. Of course he knew. When it says that Cain went out from the presence of God, it means not that God couldn't see him anymore. It means that the communication had ceased. That's all it is. You know, and, and, and I got to say, Jonathan, that I know you're going to have more problems, <laughs> you know, in terms of this, this question. But these things are answerable when you decide to look at the scriptures with reason. So it is a simple thing. God asked Cain because he wanted Cain to tell him. Just, you know, you said something about a good father before. Yes. That's what a good father would do. And, and just another scripture that's completely unrelated to this to show us what God sees and knows, Hebrews 4.13. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. All things are open and laid bare to him. So, you know, it's pretty simple, pretty straightforward. Okay, uh, how about this problem? God seems to need messengers to come to earth and verify the evil of Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis 18, 1 through 3. Now the Lord appeared to Abraham. When he lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent of his door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in your sight, please do not pass your servant by. Okay, so we've got these, uh, this messenger speaking uh, or, or, being, or visiting visiting Abraham. And so he runs to serve these three men. The three, these three men were angels. The three angels, one of which was God's spokesman, told Abraham and Sarah that they would have a son within a year. Now they're both old. They're like 89 and 99 years old, okay? They were preparing, the messengers were preparing to go down to the wicked city of Sodom when God's spokesman, one of the three, stayed back and revealed Sodom's imminent destruction. So, Jonathan, let's go to Genesis 18, 20 to 22. And the Lord said, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me. And if not, I will know. Then the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom, while Abraham was still standing before the Lord. Well, notice God's spokesman did not go but stayed with Abraham. This was obviously the plan, all for the good of Abraham and the good of Lot. Yeah, Lot is not, not something that somebody has been mentioned yet in this, this, this example. So the big problem that some people seem to have is that, well, God needed to send messengers to actually verify, to check off, yes, Sodom is evil, check. And, you know, they do say, the messengers say, we will go down uh, and, and see entirely if, if things are the way they say. Now, Here's the thing that's interesting. The one who says that is not the one who actually goes down to the city. Good it, point. Yeah, he stays with Abraham, and then Abraham, remember, talks to him about, well, if there's 50 righteous, can you save the city? If there's 40, if there's 30, if there's 20, 
and, and he's God's spokesman. The other two go down to the city. They see the evil, but they're there to deliver Lot. They're there to execute God's plan. They know the city is evil. They're going down to take Lot and give him an opportunity. So when you look at the solution for this problem, well, does God need messengers to verify the evil on the earth? No, God saw and heard what was happening all along. These messengers would verify his presence with both Abraham and Lot. They're sent specifically for those two individuals who both were righteous men. And then they would carry out God's will. They were there to carry out God's will to set things up so the will of God would be carried out. And again, another scripture, not connected, that shows us what God sees, hears, and knows. Jeremiah 23, verses 23 and 24. Am I a God who is near, declares the Lord, and not a God far off? Can a man hide himself in a hiding place so I do not see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord? So the old saying, Jonathan, you can run, but you can't hide. <laughs> it's true. It is true. <laughs> it is true. It reminds me of, of Jonah. Remember Jonah with the, with, the, uh, with the great fish? And, you know, he's going to go to Nineveh, so he goes exactly the other direction, and he's hiding. Here's an idea. Try to hide from God and see what happens. You're not going to get anywhere. And so this doesn't show us that God didn't know what was happening. He sent his messengers to, to execute his plan, to put things in place, and gave Abraham a, a chance to speak up. So it's very, very clear. God does see and hear and understand all. Okay, Rick, we have another problem. God seems to need directions during the 10th plague smiting of the firstborn of Egypt. Exodus 12, 12 through 13. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So is this saying God doesn't seem to know where to go, who to destroy or pass over? Blood red means stop? Yeah, you know, Jonathan, I just want to pause here because, you know, look, we, we find these, sometimes people ask us these questions, you know, you know, on our website at christianquestions.com, sometimes you find them, and people are looking for ways to say, well, see, God isn't everything you think he is, and he needs to have the blood to know what to do, because God really doesn't know what to do, he just is, he just needs help. That's, that's the idea behind a lot of these questions, but the reality behind them is very, very different. Let, let's finish the verses, Exodus 12, uh, verse 23. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the doorpost, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come in to your houses to smite you. So you can look at that and you can say, aha, there it is. You know, he needs directions. So what we have here, here it's a simple solution. It's a very simple solution. God sent a destroyer to do this work. The blood was the outward sign of sacrifice and obedience from each household. The instruction was, sacrifice the lamb, put the blood on the doorposts, stay inside, and live. So all this is is a reiteration of what they were commanded to do. And when the angels saw what they were commanded to do, they said, okay, faithful household. This isn't that, huh, I got lost at the last corner, where am I? There's nothing like that. It is the verification to show the needed compliance of Israel to the instructions of God. That's all. It's not that the, the destroyer is lost. It's that they needed deliverance and needed to show they were going to be faithful to what God gave them for deliverance. It's really that simple. Another scripture completely unrelated to show us all that God sees. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 3. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching the evil and the good. Very simple scripture. But it says, the eyes of the Lord are everywhere. He, nothing escapes his view. Nothing. It's really simple. But God works through different ways to execute his judgments. And sometimes, you know, you don't hear from him and you, and you wonder what might be happening. Well, Rick, last problem. This next event involving Samuel 
sure seems to indicate that God needed eyes and ears to know what was happening. Uh, the people of Israel want a king, and they complain to Samuel. And Samuel brings the request before God and is giving instruction to tell the people the consequences of having a human king and rejecting God as their king. Well, Samuel delivers the message in detail, and the people respond. 1 Samuel eight nineteen through 22. Nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Now, after Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the Lord's hearing. The Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice and appoint them a king. So Samuel said to the men of Israel, Go, every man, to his city. Well, does God really need Samuel to tell him what the people were requesting? Was he unaware? Rick, this is what some people are saying. I know, and when you think about it, you think about um, it, it's it's a it's a kind of a sad picture that Almighty God, Creator of the universe, uh, is waiting to say, Samuel, what did the people say? I can't wait to hear what you have to say. It's it's not as though he doesn't know. God always knows, but what does he always do? He makes us say it. Why? Because this is how he works. And you said it earlier, and I keep coming back to it. This is what a good parent does. A good parent wants to teach their children, and you teach your child not by lecturing them, but by asking questions, by letting them tell you what's happening and give their observations and engaging in it. This is what a good parent does, and God is the ultimate parent here. So the solution really is very simple. God knew. Of course he knew. Though he heard the people, he did not deal directly with the people. Why? Remember Moses? Remember Moses had to mediate for all of Israel? Remember God would speak to Moses and Moses would speak to the people? He never talked directly to them. This is the way he worked. God had Samuel do all of the communicating so the people would be continually reminded that God was not to be sought after in a common way. And this is, Jonathan, this is important. This shows us the sovereignty of God and how you have to go through the right channels to get to the privilege of communication with him. We have Jesus. God hears our, our, our experiences. He hears what we say. He sees what we do. He knows our thoughts, but we have to communicate them to him because it is not some magical thing. So this is not a problem. This is a parent doing what a parent does. One more scripture, completely unrelated, explaining God's abilities. Uh, Jeremiah 16, verse 17. For my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from my face, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. Yeah, see what Jeremiah said. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it, it really is simple and straightforward. Let's understand God is all-knowing, but he puts things in place so we can rise up. Clarifying contradictions, let's wrap this up. God obviously sees and knows all that is happening. What is not obvious to many is that he hides his sight and knowledge from most, as now is not the time for his plans to be revealed to all. Let us find comfort and courage in all that God sees, knowing we are all ultimately in his powerful, just, and loving hands. So what we have here is just understanding that God is all-seeing, all-knowing. He just is. But his plans make him harder to find so that we can appreciate the glory of who he is. One last scripture, Jonathan, Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? And my hand might all these things, thus all these things come into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, and to him who is humble and contrite of spirit, and who trembles at my word. So you see that God does not purposefully just make himself readily available because now is not 
the time for that. So when we look at these contradictions, we look at the, does God tempt us? No, but he tests us so he can lift us up, so he can help us to find maturity. He doesn't put us into bad positions. He helps us through those bad positions. Does God teach us... Give us permission to steal. No, we're not supposed to steal. You shall not steal. The plundering of war is the plundering of war, and it still happens today. And God is all-knowing. He is, but his process, his system, is something that can be very mysterious to many of us. Folks, when we look at all of this, what we see is God is above us, and we need to just simply accept that and then read the Word of God with the honor and reverence to God. And these questions begin to melt away and we begin to see God as he truly is. Think about it. Folks, listen, we love hearing from our listeners. We welcome your feedback and questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Coming up in our next episode, what will we be doing when we get to heaven? This is two-part series. That'll be part one of two parts. We'll talk to you next week. (music) 